everybody, it's Gary Vaynerchuk, and you're listening to The Jeff Effect. Welcome to The Jeff Effect. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Jeff Effect. I am glad to be back. Hey, listen, um, today's episode, actually, it was one of those brainstorm episodes. just doing the normal course of my everyday work and I was doing a business consultation and uh, all of a sudden my head just kind of exploded with all the power of a cool universal idea and and how that applies to all of us in lots of ways in our life and it directly applied to this guy's business so I'm going to set you up I'm going to talk about why this is the, why this is important for not just your business, but for life and for relationships and for everything else that's going on in the world. And uh, 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 it actually, it, it's one of those cool things. Let me tell you what the coolest part of it is. The coolest part of it is that the best ideas in the world are the ones that everyone agrees on. But what's crazy is that even those universally accepted ideas are things that we all continue to struggle with again and again and again. And that's what makes them these big grand ideas. We have to keep discovering it. And, you know, if, if everybody, you know, if we all got the, you know, a, a solid, you know, a liberal arts education in literature and in history, you know, we might be able to avoid a few of these things, but we don't. We, we kind of have to find our way through those on our own. So unfortunately, as modern men, with all the distractions of modern life, we have to rediscover things that were taught as a matter of, uh, of course, to, to our ancestors, but we have to discover them again for ourselves. So you're going to need to bear with me, right? Because I'm going to take you on a journey, kind of an intellectual journey. And what I want to do is I want to lay out a concept. Right, I'm going to tee this up. I'm going to lay this concept out, right? And then I'm going to jump way back in time by a couple thousand years. Then I come back forward in time to the present day once again. Say what? All to reinforce how this is an idea we all agree with. And, and then we're going to tie it back into business. And it all started with a, a routine business consultation I was doing. There's a, a guy, I'm going, to, I'm going to keep his, you know, his business and his specific business and his his identity uh, 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 you know NDA but I'm going to talk generically about him and his business and he was in the business of selling cheese mm, cheese he sells gourmet cheese and he was struggling and there was a couple things he really he just he needed he needed a good just a good consultation he needed some marketing advice some uh, some messaging advice he needed to understand, you know, how to do an economic analysis about customers, and that's that's where the whole idea flow started happening. It started with a guy selling cheese, and and uh, it turns out it worked like this. The first thing we did is we did an economic analysis, and we and we ran through his pricing strategy and his competition and everything else. His pricing was fine. There was nothing wrong with his pricing model. In fact, he was very competitive. And one could make the case that he was, he was too competitive considering his market space, but he was, he was well within the, the, the realm of being competitive on price. Um, there were no known problems with, qual- with quality. But the problem he was having was this, right? His product was cheese. And you know, his perception was that his shipping costs needed to be free for his customers. 
And that created the problem that, you know, during the hotter months, during the summer months, the weather generally was too hot. So he had to use insulated packaging and those frozen cold packs to ship his products. He had to ship them in a, in a and make sure they arrived in two days, even with the cold packs, because otherwise the cheese would, uh, would go mushy and, and some of the oil, it would, just, it, would just, it would just not good for cheese, right? And his problem was he didn't make enough money. And so he was trying to solve his problem with an economic model about you know how to take and serve these customers you know and get them to pay the extra costs to pay for the cold packs and the special insulated boxes and yada 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 and some a segment of his customers would always complain when that was the case and we had to get past that block right so he has a set of customers this is what teed us up right this is what teed us up he was losing money. He had trouble keeping up with volume as it was. Business has been good. He's doing really well. Proud of him. He's doing so many things right. So many things right that, that his business is doing well. And he's generally making money. But during the summer months, because of his pricing model, this is, he thought it was an economic problem. See, during the summer months, he wouldn't make any money at all. And on smaller orders, he would actually lose money because the shipping costs and the preparation for shipping was eating into his revenue. And so there's a couple months every year where he just didn't make any money. And, and he needed to solve that problem. And he thought it was a, a problem of economics. But it wasn't really. It was a problem of marketing, and a problem of brand, and a problem of psychology. And we're going to deal with it from the psychological aspect because it was very hard for him to accept the solution, which was right, right in front of him. It was very hard to accept the solution because of a unique psychological characteristic. So let's talk about that a little. His problem was he perceived the market differently. Now, he's a small-time producer. I don't mean that in a negative sense, but he's, he's not, you know, in the, in the United States. I, got, I have a lot of people who listen to, to this podcast outside the United States, so I don't know if these brands live over there, but some of the big brands of cheese here in, uh, in the United States and in Puerto Rico are, you know, Kraft, Sargento, Borden. These are companies that, you know, that buy, you know, tanker loads of milk a day to produce cheese in super high volume to sell them at competitive prices at the supermarket, this mass market cheese. And I'm not being a snob. There's nothing wrong with that cheese. It's great. I buy it myself occasionally. But there's a difference between a mass market cheese and you know fine artisanal cheeses that are produced on a farm, literally, which is what this guy did. And you know they have cold delivery trucks and you know the big distribution networks to get these the cheese out there to keep it cold. And the problem was is that my my the person I was giving the consultation to perceived that he was competing in that space, and he was attracting customers in that psychological space. So even if Kraft has a higher end, let's say provolone cheese, let's just keep it in the cheese analogy, even if Kraft has a high-end provolone that they charge, you know, say $10 a pound for, that, uh, you know, and they're their cheap provolone, they charge $5 a pound, and they're good high-end provolone, they charge $10 a pound for, neither one of those are what this guy does. If somebody, if somebody is price-sensitive on cheese to a buck or two, they're not really who his customer is. 
This is a guy who's, who's, who was taught how to make cheese. Let me just lay this out. He was taught how to make cheese by his grandfather, literally. One of his favorite cheeses was his grandfather's special Parmesan technique to make Parmesan cheese in the middle of the United States. And I know the purists will say, well, Parmesan cheese can only come from a certain section of, of uh, Italy. Yes, that's true from a nomenclature perspective, but they were making the equivalent of a nice Midwestern Parmesan cheese, and he was using his grandfather's recipe to do it. This is his story. And so somebody who is buying this crafted cheese product, right, if you are trying to sell to them at a price sensitivity that won't cover the cost of a few extra bucks to pay for shipping during the hot weather, that's not your customer. It's not your long-term customer. It's a customer that will eventually drive you bankrupt, right? It's a customer you. It's a customer you're always going to lose money on. But he had in his mind. It was in his mind the revenue was valuable even though the revenue lost money even it not, not just not just didn't make money but actually would lose a little bit of money 50 cents 25 cents on an order negative he was addicted to the volume going up his mind he was he had he had he watched he would he the, the metric he was using was total revenue and we've seen Dozens, if not hundreds, of major corporations make the mistake. Macy's has made this mistake for the last uh, 15 years, and it's almost destroyed the company. I have no idea if they're even going to survive. But they got so addicted to paying dividends and showing increasing revenue that they lost sight of their brand and who their real customers were, and now they're in a really, really bad spot. So uh, it's a similar thing. In his mind, the total sales number, the total revenue number was, 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 he was holding on to that fiercely in that, in that he could not get past, on his own, get past the point where to risk losing that revenue. But if you're losing money in every sale and you can barely keep up production as it is, are you really losing anything if you don't make that sale? That's the question, right? And that's the one we had to resolve together. And the answer is truly this. Let's, let's focus on the, his Parmesan product, right? If, if you are buying a, 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 one of those plastic drums of pre-grated craft Parmesan cheese, right? You are not necessarily the customer who buys a handcrafted Parmesan cheese that you have to shave with a, with a cheese shaver. It's not the same customer. It's not the same application. And if and and the customer who's buying that high-end cheese, and bear with me on this. We're, we're going to follow this around here because it applies to every business. The customer of that high-end cheese is going to understand if you tell him, right? It, it's a it, then we switched it from his psychology of holding on to sales that were really not good for him. These are sales. These are this is revenue and sales that was hurting him, hurting his business and making him and 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 and, and stressing him out right? And he's holding on to it. But ultimately, the customers he would keep if he said to these customers, quite simply this, that we switch to a marketing message, to messaging, that things like, life is too short for melted cheese. Uh, his core message is, my cheese is too good to ship cheaply. I, I, I cannot let you have a bad cheese experience. We, we, we worked through a lot of these different messaging points, right? 
I can't let you have a bad cheese experience. No frozen chill packs, insulated boxes means you will have a bad cheese experience. Therefore, during the summer, I charge $5 extra for shipping. It's things along that line, and he's working with that and crafting it and making that message his own. And we, we did several other points as well. But I want to emphasize the point. He was holding on to a revenue number that was actually killing him. But it turns out we all do that. And, and we do it all, all the time. So it's not just me. I mean, you're talking, you're here. I am Jeff, you know, Mr. Know-it-all. What, what do I know? I'm just the guy, you know, you know, talking here with the podcast, right? But this is one of those things, letting go of something, letting go of a number, letting go of something that you're holding on to now, whatever that is, in order to have better and more and different and, and more genuinely you later on is something that's something that's universal. It's that important. It's something that's been talked about a lot. So let's start with the present day, all right? Let's start with two people from the present day. The first, I want to play a clip. This is, this is, this is the inimitable Gary Vaynerchuk, Gary V. And, and he, it's one of his core themes, right? It's one of his core themes that you can, be, you can get trapped in a job that you hate uh, by essentially what's called, uh, you know, golden handcuffs. You know, we, even, we have that word golden handcuffs. And uh, Gary V talks about that and about being trapped in a job or by, by debt or by, uh, you know, by status or whatever it is, whatever's trapping you in a place that you don't like and getting out of it. So let's, let's, let's listen to a minute and a half of Gary V. So many of you created golden handcuffs for yourself that aren't letting you. Why are you not willing to take one step backwards for a step for the rest of your life? You're worried about if you move back in with your parents or if you're not married with a job at 31. You are not willing to take a step backwards a step backwards, which then affords you the ability to quit your bullshit job or stop doing your bullshit startup and do something else you love or you think you can be good at. Like who the hell's permission are you looking for to do your thing? Like who is this person? Is it your mom? Is it society? Is it your partner? Is it the people that are commenting in your social media? Is it something that happened to you when you were nine? Right. Okay. So th- this this is Gary V. And I'll, and I'll work with me on this. And I don't wor- you know I don't worship at the altar of Gary V. But I'm I'm bringing him up for a reason. He's one of the most prominent, I don't know, business marketing social media gurus for today. And he's he's making a statement about people who hang on to something, and it's to their detriment because it prevents them from getting where they need and believe they need to go. So from from basically, if you want to see it a different way, from fulfilling their their more natural fulfilled destiny, they're holding on to something, and that that thing they're holding on to, they think it's their lifeline, but the thing they're holding on to is really the anchor that's holding them back, right? Uh huh. Now I want to tell a personal story. I have a, I have a good friend, a really good friend, um, who's living that right now. When I first started in uh, technology, I was starting the publication side of this, and um, you know, this friend of mine um, took and he wa- he knew so much more than me as far as technology and 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 communications and messaging. He knew it all. He had it. He was teaching me the ropes, right? Um, and you know, we were in a technolo- high tech environment. 
I didn't know I had I had to learn how to build web pages. I had to learn how to write clearly and concisely, and I had to be able to write from a as a technical writer, you know, that level of engineering precision in my writing. And I had to be able to write marketing copy with the more persuasive and more familiar type of writing. And these things were all demanded on me. And it was a very demanding boss, and he was driving me forward. And I was learning technology and working side by side with with the, some of the most sophisticated aerospace engineers. Um, around at the same time, and I was learning, but he knew more than me. And then as time went by, you know, he got promoted into a different permission, and I, and I went on to, to different career moves, but he got promoted into a position, um, and he started working with an old technology. He started working with old co uh, uh, applications written in COBOL, and, and this is a, a major U.S. corporation that has legacy systems that are still running you know, ancient COBOL applications, and they're just going to run them for the next you know, 10 to 15 to 20 years until those, until those uh, aerospace programs just you know, run their course. Eventually, they'll die. But until they do, these old COBOL programs need to be maintained. And they paid him really, really well to make that transition. And he thought he'd hit the freaking lotto. Heart, you know, nobody wanted the gig. Um, it, 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 uh, he, it was a e relatively easy work. And uh, he got paid, you know, you, know, you know, let's just say, you know, on the high side between $100,000 and $200,000 a year to do it. Um, and he started collecting stuff, you know, high, his mortgage, he had a beautiful house, it's a gorgeous house, uh, lots of motorcycles and trucks and ATVs and toys, his garage, it's a three-car garage stuffed to the gills with toys, and all that stuff was just kind of compensation because he was miserable as heck, and inside of a couple years, it, it upset him, it palpably upset him last night when we were talking because my my career, my understanding, he had no knowledge of the cloud. He had no knowledge of the latest web technologies. He didn't know what applications were coming out of Microsoft. He didn't know the, uh, the everything that was going on, and I was in the middle of it still, and, and that was exciting. And he longed for what I had, but he couldn't get out. He was trapped. He had his own version. That those are, that's the def, he's the prototypical definition at the time of golden handcuffs. He couldn't get away. He was trapped. But it's, it's all psychological. He psychologically trapped himself, and then he financially trapped himself, and it became a viciously spiraling circle. So Gary Vee, one of the leading gurus in business and marketing these days, you know, agrees with that. He agrees with what I just said. I've got a personal story of a good friend of mine who I'm very close with, He's got that story. He's, he, he, he's, hold, he's, being, he's holding on to that paycheck. He's holding on to all the stuff. And quite frankly, it's breeding a lot of dissatisfaction in him. Well, you know, I, I just did a quick sampling and I found you know, Joe Rogan. And I'm going to bring Joe Rogan up again. I've talked about him before. But he's kind of like on the cutting edge of pop culture these days. He's kind of the... I'm going to call him like the uh, cross between, you know, Johnny Carson and Chris Wallace of, of the modern age. You know, he does good interviews and things of that nature. And, you know, he was giving an interview with Suzanne Santo, and, and uh, you know, they actually touched on this. And so let me play a quick clip from Joe Rogan as he just extemporaneously is talking about his experience with this and what his opinions are. So let's listen to Joe Rogan on it for a second. <laughs> the Joe Rogan experience. I think of money as something that's entangled into life. Yeah. There's, there's great 
aspects to what you can do with your money, but it's entangled into your life in a weird way. There's like, there's what you currently can do, right? Based on your circumstances, sure. based on your life, your health, your responsibilities. There's what you can do, and there's what, what's like, what's humanly possible for you to do. Mm -hmm. And when you see people that are making a lot of money, and you see that money, that money starts you to get you thinking that that's what you should do. Yeah. You should do that money thing, whatever that money is. Like, no, no, no. I used to make less money. Now I make more money, and that makes more money than even I make. I got to do what that is to get more money. But then you do that, you realize, oh, but this isn't fun. Yeah. Now most of my day is spent doing something that's not enjoyable. Mm -hmm. That's not what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So then it's what you want to do, what you can do, what's possible, and what you want to do. Mm -hmm. And they don't always go together. Sometimes what you can do is like you have too much responsibilities and you're, you're, you're always going to feel short-sighted by life because it's random and it's crazy and it's chaos. But the money thing can trick you. Okay, so here we have Gary Vee agrees. I agree. My personal experience is in alignment with that. And now Joe Rogan agrees. Right? Joe Rogan agrees. We're all kind of on the same page. We're telling the story differently, but this message is the same. Do you, do you see that? Do you, can, you, can you see that the message is the same? But it got me thinking, you know, I, this, is, this is a story. These, this, this concept is as old as time. It's as old as time itself. And I hope you're not un uncomfortable with this, but I'm going to grab two stories that some might consider to be religious. The first one I'm going to give you is uh, one of the, in my opinion, one of the most misunderstood passages of Christian scripture that exists. It, it comes from Matthew 19, verses 16 through 30. And it's, it's a famous story. And there's tons and there's tons of interpretations and people telling things. And it, it's a story, you've heard this, it's like a rich, a rich guy comes to, comes, comes to Christ and says, hey, I got a problem. He says, I, not, I want to be saved. I want to have eternal life. How do I do it? This is important. Listen carefully to this. Christ replies to him. Christ says, well, be a good guy. Um, obey the commandments. Don't sin, and you'll be fine. This guy says, well, I've done all that but there's something missing. I know there's something missing. Now, this is really important because uh, this is the famous, you know, the famous thing where it says, you know, uh, it is easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Because what happens is after Christ says, just obey the commandments, and the guy says it's not enough, there's something else missing here, then Christ says to him, you know, hey, okay then, sell all that you have, give your stuff to the poor, and follow me. Now, it's important. I'm not trying to get all religious on you. That's not, that's not my scene. But I want, I want you to put, pay attention to what's going on here. The guy knew he had a problem. And what's not like, you know, it's not like Jesus went out and found him and said, hey, you're, you're, you're screwing up. He, this is a guy who knows something's not right. So, you know, the first reaction is, hey, just, just make sure you don't screw up. Don't sin. Don't do all the, you know, keep the commandments and everything's going to be fine. And the man inside of him, he knows something's not right still. He can feel it. So, B, 
being perceptive, Christ says, you know, you gotta, you gotta give up. You're being held back by your, your richness. Your, the money is a hand, you have golden handcuffs on, dude, and that's what's holding you back. You know you're not satisfied. You know, you know that something's wrong and you're being called to something different, but you're being imprisoned by those golden handcuffs. And the guy was upset. You know, the guy was upset. And he walked away. And then that's when the whole camel, eye of the needle stuff came in. So people focus on rich guy. People focus on the, you know, is the eye of the needle, is it literal? Is it an allegory for a gate? None of that really matters. What we, what we need to focus on here is that the person knew there was something wrong. He knew. He's the only one who knew. Everyone else thought he was doing fine. He knew there was something wrong. He knew that he wasn't doing something right. He knew there was, he was being called differently. And he could not advance in the direction he knew he needed to go because of golden handcuffs. But, you know, it's, it's not just a Christian message. Let me, let, me, let me take it back an extra 500 years. You know, the, there's a Buddhist concept, and I'm going to pronounce this terribly. I, I, you know, I, I can say Spanish words fairly well. I can say Italian words. And I, I can even say a Russian word here or there. But, but I, can't, I, I can't say, you know, French words and Hindic words are just just. I murder them in, in my in my in my mouth. So but I'm gonna do my best. But the, the concept is called Upedana. Upedana. If you are a follower of Buddhism, you're going to be yelling at your phone right now. You're gonna be screaming at it, telling me that I'm pronouncing it wrong. So forgive me for that. But that's the concept, right? It's it, it it's upedana, upedana, upedana. And what it means it's a, it's the concept of clinging. And that clinging is the point of suffering, right? When it's when you are, and people get all kind of crazy that you know, and they they take it to an extreme that you should never be a, you should never have any fondness or attachment to anything at all, and that's not really what the path to you know good life is. But the point is, is that if you are clinging to something, to the point that it prevents you from doing what you know you need to do you are going to live in suffering, whether or not that is ideological, financial, religious, um, in business. That's, that's the real meat of the concept. It's, that, it's not that you don't like things. It's not like you don't enjoy physical things. That's an extremist point of view. The practical side of it is that if you cling to something to the point where it prevents you from living and fulfilling your life, then it's going to be a problem. You're going to suffer because of that, right? So this whole clinging thing, holding on to something. You know, we've now covered that from kind of a guru, business guru sense. We've covered it from, you know, pop culture sense. And then we've covered it from a Christian perspective. We've covered it from a Buddhist perspective. And everybody's kind of on the same page with this, right? Everybody's kind of on the same page with this, but we're not done yet. Um, now we're going to talk about kind of a more of a modern science perspective. And we're going to, we're, we're going to talk about uh, Nigel's favorite stories. Nigel, you love the monkey stories, don't you? No. No balls. Don't you? Don't you, I, Nigel? I freaking love the monkey stories. Yeah, I know. I love them. Anyway, the monkey stories. You know, all this made me think. I mean, I was I was actually you know listening to some 
recordings and some some you know some instructional you know audio and I I was reminded of something about this, and I'd seen something so many years ago and I can't tell you I mean I think I saw it I'm I'm not lying I think I saw this has to have been forty years ago maybe somewhere between somewhere between thirty five and forty years ago. I'd seen a video, and I think I saw the original version of this, like it was in an anthropology class at school, or it was on a, ge- a geography class, and, and this is what it was. It was it was kind of a, one of those you know, documentary student documentary presentation films about you know I think I think my memory serves me is that it was about how you know uh, uh, Arab Aborigines in the Kalahari Desert and how they did certain things, how they found water found food, how they kept their families fed, how they got along. I think that's what it was about. But anyway, I remembered this. There was, there was a story in there. And, and the, what, the, what brought it to mind is I'd heard this, this psychologist was talking about you know, a, a story he'd heard about you know, how to trick a monkey by, to get his hand stuck in a jar. And he was saying that he didn't know whether, whether it was true or not. And, but I remembered I'd seen a documentary on exactly that. And this is how it went. This is important. Stick with me on this. This is important. Okay. The, the uh, aborigine was looking for water. So what he wanted to do was he needed to take and have a monkey lead him to water. Almost sounds like the beginning of a joke, right? He needed to have the monkey lead him to water. So what he did is he needed to, tr- first of all, trap the monkey. So what he would do is he went, found, went to, a, to a big mound of earth, looked like a termite mound, big thing in the middle of the Kalahari Desert, and he would dig a hole. And he would make the hole narrow on the outside, almost like a, like a, like a buried jar. So it was bigger on the inside and like narrow on the outside. And he would gauge the size so that it was big enough for the monkey to slip his hand into the hole but not to be able to pull it out if it was a fist. Can you picture that? Can you picture that? So you have a hole. It's like shaped like a jar on the inside. It's like a bigger on the inside with a narrower opening. So you can just reach. If you make your hand skinny, you can reach it in there. But if you grab something, it's like finding your keys behind the washing machine. You know, you're reaching your hand back there and you grab the keys, but you, you can't pull your hand back out because your hand's too big for the gap, right? So it's the same thing. And then what you would do is, is this, this, this aboriginal would then go and put little pieces of food outside of the hole, and then he'd let the monkey eat them. He'd walk away, get far away, the monkey cannot eat those pieces. And then he'd walk back, and now that he's got the monkey's attention, he would drop a few pieces of the food inside the hole and then walk away. And the monkey would originally just race down the tree, stick his hand in, grab the food, and then he was trapped. So we get the concept in here. Then the aborigine is he, he just he's got nothing to worry about. He just walks out from behind the rock where he was hiding. The monkey's going nuts, panicking, because he's trapped. But the monkey has trapped himself. He can't get away because he won't let go of what's in the hole. It's something he wants. It's something that tastes good. And he wants that. He can't let go. And the aborigine just walks up to the monkey and slips a collar around his neck, and he's trapped the monkey. He now has the monkey. And the only thing the monkey would have to do is let go of what was in the hole, and he could have run away. But now the aboriginal man has him. Now, I actually went, God bless the Internet, because I went out, 
and somebody had found a, you know, had found a French language version of that exact, I recognized the video as soon as I saw it. I kept searching, and I found the exact video that I saw 30, 35 years ago. But it was the French overdub version of it at this particular story. And somebody had maybe, you know, downloaded it and put it up on YouTube. And I've, I've put a link. I'm putting, in fact, there's a link to all references, to all the references I've made. There's links in the, in the episode notes. You can cross-reference and check me on everything. And I, I say that for everything. You know, don't just trust what I say. Back it up. There's links there, and I put a link to this video. You can watch it for yourself. If you speak French, you'll actually understand it, but you can see. You can watch the whole process. The video will walk you through it, and it's fascinating, but there's the concept again. Here you have a monkey. What we're talking about is, is, is you know, a socio- sociology and primatology. It's, it's how the behavior of the monkey and the behavior of the aboriginal Kalahari Bushman and how he's, he's augmented his behavior to capture the monkey. And it's the same thing we all wrestle with. We can be trapped and captured by something we won't let go of. Well, I guess the moral of the story is don't be a bloody monkey. Right? Now, so, here, you know, all right, so I'm walking you through this again. We have two contemporary examples. We have, we have Gary V. He's a business marketing guru. He, we have Joe Rogan, pop culture guru. He's the guy. These are two guys right now. We have a story from the Christian scriptures, and we have a concept from Buddhism that all talk about the same thing. And I, believe it or not, if I kept digging, these are just things that came to mind. I could probably come up with dozens of similar stories and similar concepts because this is one of those universal archetype ideas, Right? But it's invaluable to running your life and your business, right? But why can't we see that? I'm going to give you one more story. I'm going to give you the gorilla story. This is another one of Nigel's favorites. Yes, it is, boss. Another winner. This, this, is, an, this is one of his favorites. It, it's the gorilla story. It actually is called the invisible gorilla story. The, and, and here's the problem. It's how can something be so universally accepted, something that... We, uh, in, in, in not just Western culture, but in Eastern culture and in African culture, it's something that has permeated the psychology and behavior of mankind for thousands of years. Why can't we see it when, when it happens? Why can't we see it? Why can't we see that when we're holding on to something so tightly, when we're holding on to something so tightly, that it prevents us from acting in the way that we know it's appropriate, that why don't we know that we're supposed to let go? And, and the answer is pretty easy. And I'm, I'm going to tell you this too. And it's the same thing with the cheese guy. Remember? He was counting the wrong thing. And so there's, there's another story. And I've, I've actually posted a link to this YouTube video as well. It's a psychological experiment. And I'm going to describe it to you now. And that's a little bit cheating because if you go and watch the video now, you'll be in on the trick. <laughs> right? You'll be in. It's like a magic trick. And you'll be in on it and you'll think, oh, I wouldn't have fallen for that. But I'm telling you, you probably would have fallen for it because it's something like two-thirds of people or better always fall for this. And this is the psychological trick right? 
What they do is they show two basketball teams. And in and, and, and this particular experiment, one basketball team is dressed in black and the other basketball team is dressed in, in, in white. And people are brought in and they're shown a video of these two people just, these two teams just passing the ball to each other, right? Passing the ball back and forth. And they're given an assignment. They say, what you need to do is count the number of times the white team passes their basketball. They say, don't count the number of times the black cup team passes the basketball. Just focus on the team dressed with the white jerseys and count how many times they pass the basketball. And so this is a, you know, it's about a two or three minute video and it runs and you have these, you know, two five-member teams running around, jockeying around each other, passing the basketball back and forth and people are counting the number of passes. And then after it's done, the, you know, they give, they give an answer. And very often people are either right or they're very close to the number of times. But, that, but here's the thing, that was the trick, right? They were counting the number of passes. And then they give their answer. But what the psychologist doing this study then did is they said, hey, okay, did you notice anything else in the scene? And they would say no. Okay. Did you notice anything, any person or animal walking into the middle of the basketball game? And they'd say, what, what do you mean? What, what, what animal, what person walking in there? I just saw the players. All right. And... What the truth was is that the, the, the being able to count the number of passes wasn't the test. The test was if you could be distracted enough not to notice something staring you right in the face. Because in the middle of the video of the basketball game, a six-foot-tall guy in a gorilla suit walks onto, the walks onto the playing surface in the middle of the players, stands there, beats his chest like, like King Kong, and then walks off. And people didn't see it. They were too busy counting the number of passes to notice something that was glaringly out of place and obvious. This is a psychological principle that infects all of us in humanity. If I just tell you that people need to learn to let go of that which is not healthy for them and that which is not serving the greater good, Right? That's something that is only temporarily pleasurable or temporarily beneficial or temporarily profitable, but in the long run is going to be detrimental. If I just tell you that as a concept, everybody says yes. But when you start trying to point this out to people in their everyday lives, they deny that that exists because they can't see it. They're too busy counting. So it's a pretty deep concept, right? But that was my cheese guy. He was counting revenue numbers and number of transactions. And he couldn't see the gorilla standing in the middle of his business beating his chest. And again, that's a fun video to watch. And you should watch it. There's a link in the show notes. Give it a click. And uh, you know, it, it, just take a look because it's a fascinating case study. But now think about that for yourself too, right? This is one of the most fundamental problems in business today. You know, and I'm going to go back and I'm going to use Macy's as an example because they've been making me very angry recently. But I'm going to use them as an example. You know, they have been neglecting their online presence for 20 years. They have been in a, uh, addicted to running promotional sales. They've been addicted 
to lowering price merchandise. They've been addicted to even making sure they pay a dividend. They've needed if you if you have the opportunity ever again. I mean, there's, there's, most of the stores are still closed because of the uh, the pandemic shutdown. But if you go into a Macy's, the, you know, even to this day, you know, you're going to walk up to a cash register to buy something, and you're going to see a, a gigantic cash register, you know, the size the size of a college refrigerator sitting on the counter. And it's going to make the devil's own noise when it prints out the dot matrix printer, prints out your receipt. And it's going to whiz and make all these noises and occasionally crash. These are cash registers that they've been jury rigging to work for the last 30 years. These cash registers have been, these should have been replaced. Their technology is so far out of date, but they were addicted. They were addicted because the costs involved prevent, they were counting profitability. They were counting sales. They kept expanding stores in more expensive locations. They were, they were kept increasing same store revenue because they were addicted to the stock performance. They were addicted to all the wrong things. They were watching and counting everything that's wrong, not doing what they needed to do. And this isn't something from the last year. If you look at just, and, and I'm going to put one more link out there. I'm going to put a link to, uh, to the Macy's uh, to the Macy's uh, stock performance. If you look at their stock performance in the last five years, not just in the COVID crisis, this is something that goes, for the last five years, the stock has been on a steady decline from seven, somewhere between, I think it's like $70 a share, now trading around $5 a share. And it's been a long, steady decline. Because, and it's because they've been counting the wrong thing for 20 years, and it's destroying the business. It's, it's where we're seeing the death throes of one of America's great uh, iconic retail brands. The brand's been around for, like, I, think, I think it's 120, 130 years, uh, it's late 1800s somewhere. And it's, it's been, um, uh, they've been still paying, all the time that they were, that stock was sliding from $70 down to five, they never missed a quarterly dividend. And that's all money that should have been reinvested in saving the company and updating the technology and getting them where they needed to be. But they were counting the wrong things. And, and, and they couldn't see the elephant in the middle of the store beating his chest because they're too busy counting something else. It's a business lesson, guys. It's an important business lesson. And you know what? It's not just a business lesson. If you think about this, this applies to your personal life, your professional life. It applies to almost everything that we do. And I could go on, but I won't because this has gone on long enough. That's it for today. It's, I love this story. I hope you love this story. And um, I hope it gives you some benefit. And if you really think about it, it might make you uh, question some of the, your current business strategies and tactics. Anyway, that's it. Thank you. So do me one favor. Look, you know, this, I, I do this and I research this. I do it because I love it. And uh, I'll tell you a little secret. I would do it anyway. But if you would still please like this, give this podcast a review, share this podcast with a buddy. If you know somebody in business who's holding on to something he shouldn't be, <clears throat> send them a link and uh, do that. And we'll just call the whole thing even. And that's it for now. See you next time, folks. Bye for now. Oh,